Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome to Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. everyone. Hi and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. I am joined by an increasingly excitable Tim McInerney, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> who has just informed me that he's cooked up yet another episode on the War of Independence. Yes, Naomi, I think, I think, brace yourself, I think this is going to be a four-parter. <laughs> a four-parter, well, okay, it might be. Anyway, maybe I'm just getting ahead of myself. All I know is that I've been more or less living and breathing the War of Independence for the past few weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've I've just got a lot to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to tie us into any particular format, so we'll just see where the content takes us. Um, but I promise, that's it. I'll move on to something else soon. Let's awesome. Just... No, no, I really like this because um, when we're talking about the War of Independence, we're often, I mean, how it seems to me is we're seeing a kind of portrait of Ireland during those years between 1919 mm-hmm. and 1922. We've already got to touch on a lot of aspects of that period of history. History, but this, I think, gives us this kind of granular detail of this really formative moment in time that tells us so much about the state that was to emerge. Um, so mm-hmm. that reminds me, listeners, you are tuning in to part two of a mini series on the Irish War of Independence. So before listening to this episode, I would advise you to go back and listen to our previous installment on the first doll, because otherwise you're jumping in halfway through and you might be a bit lost. Yeah, indeed. Wait until you get to episode four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So go and uh, get yourselves caught up and we'll meet you back here. So let's quickly go over what we covered during that last episode. So firstly, in 1916, there was a massive rebellion against British rule in Ireland, led by a hodgepodge collection of Republicans, socialists, feminists, anti-imperialists. Uh, the rebellion initially had relatively low support among the general population, but the British government's reaction was so heavy-handed that the Republican cause gained widespread support within a few months. Right. The following year, that rebel faction formed a political front under the Sinn Féin party, and they began campaigning across Ireland for independence. If they were elected, they promised, they would break away from the United Kingdom and form a government for the Irish Republic that they had declared in 1916. And that, listeners, is exactly what happened. In 1918, Sinn Féin swept the board in the general elections, winning 73 of Ireland's 101 seats in Westminster. As promised, the party refused their seats in the British Parliament and instead formed their own government in Dublin, which they called Dáil Éireann. Last week, we saw that the British first tried to ignore what was happening in Ireland, but then Irish delegates started to travel the world. They started lobbying other countries to officially recognise the Irish Republic. And then the doll started to spearhead a system of national boycotting. Mm. So all around Ireland, people stopped paying taxes to the British government. They stopped interacting with the British legal system. And they were collectively ostracising figures of British authority, like the police or the military. So in effect, Ireland just started functioning as an independent state with or without permission. Violence began to break out almost immediately. Police fled their posts in huge numbers, barracks and tax offices were burned en masse, and the Dáil's army, the IRA, took over vast swathes of the country. The IRA assassination of RIC officers in Solo Headbeg symbolically opened the gate to what many people in Ireland had long been expecting, 
A War of Independence. Okay, so when we left you last time, Winston Churchill, uh, over in Britain, had just deployed the infamous Black and Tans mm-hmm. to crush the rebel government. And we're going to get onto them in a minute. Uh, but first, Naomi, I want to bring in Dr. Connor Mulva for a moment. We know uh, Connor Mulva from a previous episode. He's senior lecturer in history in University College Dublin. And right now, he is actually one of Ireland's best known historians when it comes to this period of history. I asked Connor if he had anything to add to what we covered last week, and he mentioned two things that I thought were really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, he told me how the women's movement, Common Man, was largely responsible for creating and then maintaining the narrative of martyrdom that was so important in swaying public opinion in favour of republicanism after the rising, which I thought was just really interesting that they were, you know, responsible for that very successful strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, this was during a time when, you know, loads of the men had been swept up. They'd been sent to internment camps. A few women were sent to internment camps too, not very many. Um, but these women who were left at home were basically actively mad- managing what was a massive propaganda campaign. Uh, they were drawing attention to the Republican cause, they were leading mass protests against executions, and when those protests were banned, they started leading prayer vigils, which were, you mm. know, it was very difficult to, to ban or to crack down on a prayer vi- vigil led by women, right, um, mm-hmm. for the authorities. It was just going to be bad optics. Um, so it was very, very clever stuff that they were doing. Here's Connor. In terms of Irish women's history, the years 1916 to 18 are absolutely important. It's Irish women who really create the groundswell of support for the rebels. They actually put a narrative sense onto the Irish revolutions, or let's say the 1916 rising. So they explain it to the people. And in many senses, it's the women of Cumanamon who are responsible for creating martyrs out of rebels after the rising. So they, they create a hagiography, they create a martyrology around those who both fought and died in the 1916 Rising. So this is a phase where they're readying the public for the coming fight, be that political or military. Something else Connor mentioned was the role of university students in this political movement, which I had never really thought about, actually, but which makes the world of sense, right? Yeah, of course. Um, Now that you say that, I'm reminded actually of the last time we spoke to Connor, which was when he told us about the Indian students in University College Dublin or UCD Mm. who got involved in the revolution and who later used their experience of rebellion in Ireland to inspire resistance to British rule in India. Yeah, right. And listeners probably remember from that episode on Ireland and India that uh, there was a moment where professors in UCD were like taking out revolvers during their lectures and telling students how to use them and, you know, about the coming revolution. So, yeah, of course, this was a really important aspect of all this. Like, you know, republicanism, like we said before, was this conspicuously young movement. So it's really interesting to think about students actually being a dr- driver in this radical campaign. What I really see is there's a fascinating generation of students that come through in the years, say, 1916 to 21 in UCD. They're a little bit more broad-based in society than the generation that came before them, who were a little bit more elite, a little bit more aligned to the constitutional nationalist movement. And they're a really radical generation. So, you know, we have accounts of UCD students being recruited by Dick Mulcahy at the start of medicine lectures, of some of the uh, female staff in UCD, uh, particularly among the, the service staff and the porters, being members of Coming to Man and assisting UCD students like uh, Kevin Barry and his pals, like Frank Flood, 
uh, to hide revolvers and, and notes and documents of the IRA when a raid happens on campus after the uh, the arrest of, of uh, Kevin Barry in November of 1920. I think one of the one of the sources I really enjoy talking to students about is the diary of Celia Shaw, who's a UCD student, and she keeps a diary between um, 1920 and 1922. And it's just a fascinating insight into, you know, I need to go to the library. I need to meet with my friends. So-and-so broke up with so-and-so. Or, and then in the next page, she's like, oh, got through a, a British military curfew. Or today we went to Mount Joy to pray the rosary at the at the gates of the prison for Kevin Barry. Uh, and I didn't know him myself, but all the girls who were in the, the Gaelic League or in the Cayleys, uh, very much knew Kevin and everyone's very fond of him. And he's going to be hung in the morning. So by 1920, Ireland was in a really weird position. The majority of the country was effectively being run, run by Dole Éireann and policed by the IRA. Meanwhile, you have this British administration that is still holding onto power by its fingernails and trying desperately to regain control. You have the Dole, which is now mostly governing the country from hiding. And at the same time, you have this official Lord Lieutenant, Lord French, who's supposed to be Britain's chief governor in Ireland, sitting alone in his grand viceregal lodge, surrounded by a country that, in large part, is now completely ignoring him. In December 1919, the IRA attempted to assassinate Lord French too, which really spooked the authorities. You know, that actually, thinking about that Vice Regal Lodge, that reminds me of something mm. really interesting that I learned during this research that has stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the fact that some IRA captains deliberately took their volunteer units. They took them to the big houses for training and they got them to train on the lawns of these big country mansions <laughs> right in front of the windows of, of the aristocracy. You know, they would be pra- practicing drilling and using rifles and explosives, you know, on the lawn um, of these like ascendancy landlords who, you know, were supposed to have such power over them. And the idea mm. of doing that was to rid the volunteers of any deference, any kind of remaining deference they might have held for the upper orders, for the aristocracy in Ireland, yeah. and to get them to think about themselves like not only as equals of the upper classes, but as kind of their superiors in a new Ireland, right? And entitled to their land and property. Exactly. Actually entitled to their land and property, yeah, yeah, as well. But also, you know, I mean, imagine how powerful that must have been for someone who's grown up from day one, from the moment they were born, thinking about these people as better than them, right? Like, I can't Mm. get that image out of my head of how incredibly disruptive it must have been for how people thought about themselves, like both within and without those big houses, you know, the people within those houses Mm -hmm. must have had such a, you know, an existential crisis at that moment as well, right? And so this is existential as well as political. There's a whole sense of what what Ireland used to be is being kind of collectively burned to the ground. What an image, incredible. It must have been frightening for the people inside the houses. Mm-hmm. Of, of course, hundreds of those big houses were ultimately burned down during the War of Independence and the subsequent Civil War because, you know, they were they were symbols of a certain power structure. And those ruins are a constant reminder of this period of history that lie across the Irish countryside. Yeah, indeed. Now, it's worth taking a moment here to consider how exactly the IRA worked. Uh, remember, this military force had grown out of the Irish Volunteers, a militia which had been steadily professionalising since 1913, which had already been involved in the 1916 Rising. So we need to remember that a lot of these guys were actually fairly experienced. You know, these were, this was not new to a lot of these people. And as support for the Dáil grew, their ranks expanded, and that, that gave them new challenges. You have all these new recruits who are joining up in tiny villages and towns across the country, and... 
since this whole operation was carried out covertly, it was very, very difficult to coordinate this, you know, massive number of forces on a national level. Right. And then there's this old question, of course, of how do you get weapons? Mm. The IRA had to organize a way to arm themselves somehow. Consignments of guns would be transported on trains. Um, they'd be hidden in suitcases or hat boxes. Um, weapons would arrive on fishing boats in little coastal hamlets in the dead of night, um, avoiding detection by the coast guard and of course police barracks provided a constant source of weapons and they were commonly seized in IRA raids then of course these weapons had to be kept somewhere so the country was full of arms dumps sometimes in farm buildings sometimes buried underground in remote parts of the countryside or famously as had been a tradition among Irish rebels for centuries hidden inside the thatched roofs of cottages yeah you can't beat a beat a classic right when when in doubt put it in the thatch <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, like organizing the system across a whole country was difficult, to say the least. But remember that the British authorities were in relative disarray as well. Westminster's policy in relation to Ireland was all over the place. It always really had been. Mm. And right now, the situation was way out of control. And most of the government in Westminster, really, you know, they had no idea about what they were actually dealing with. So strategies mm. against the IRA were changing all the time. And, you know, half the time they were really half-baked and they were counterproductive. So that in itself, this kind of mismanagement from Westminster was a bit of a nightmare for Britain's own security forces and their army. Remember, the British army was seriously, seriously depleted after World War I. And at this point, they hadn't gotten back up to normal levels uh, in their ranks on the ground in Ireland, let mm. alone, you know, enough to deal with an, an um, insurgent war. So the IRA were very aware that despite all these obstacles in their paths, they actually had a few major advantages uh, over Britain. Firstly, mm. their recruits were usually local. They knew the countryside like the back of their hand, and they knew practically everyone who lived in every house, right? Mm. Secondly, the IRA had widespread community support, like really, really intense widespread community support. And that meant that in much of the country, they could disappear at a moment's notice into a cottage or a hotel or wherever. And they could be fairly sure that whoever was in there was going to hide them and give them sanctuary. Um, mm. But thirdly, they realized that they had the opportunity, however difficult it might be, to create a disciplined army, a really disciplined army, which if they even, you know, got halfway there, it would immediately give them an upper hand over the disparate kind of confused forces of the British authorities in Ireland at this point. Remember, this is a point when half of the police have fled their posts. So I guess what you're saying is installing like a modern military discipline and order among these, um, you know, old volunteer militias was, this was a huge concern at this point. Mm. Um, so... I guess that's what they set about doing. It, it's hard to date when you start calling them the IRA. In Joseph Mary Plunkett's field notebook during the, the rising, he talks about day one of the Republic and he starts referring to the Irish volunteers and the Irish citizen army and Cumann Amon and Fianna Aaron and the Hibernian Rifles, just to name check all the different paramilitary organisations that are involved in the rising. He starts to refer to them as the Army of the Irish Republic or the IRA in his notebooks at that time. It's a term that seeps in slowly between 1916 and about 1919. By the time the War of Independence is in full flight, IRA is being used predominantly. From 1917 or 18 onwards, uh, GHQ is set up. So GHQ is, is general headquarters of the IRA. And they attempt to put a, a, a superstructure on this. They try and kind of both train the IRA. They try and impose discipline on the IRA. 
I've been reading through a lot of Richard Mulcahy's papers. Mulcahy, who's the chief of staff of the IRA throughout this period, he actually operates out of a, a secret office in the chemistry corridor of UCD, kind of only a UCD student as a front activity for the fact that he's running the IRA. He's sending out missives and directives. He's very active along with his, his staff and they have departments and they try and they try and train the IRA. They try and direct activities as best they can. How effective they are in that is a whole other question. I would say a lot of what's going on is local initiative and then retrospective sanction or retrospective approval from the, the GHQ. With the Irish volunteers, they've been set up on a company level. So that's the level below a uh, battalion. Companies were to be based on localities rather than professions or anything like that. Again, the one exception to that actually was UCD. So there was a UCD company of the Irish Volunteers set up in 1913 because the students were all essentially one geographic community. So you would have had like a Castle Comer company, you would have had a Kilkenny City company. So they get made then into battalion structures and ultimately brigades. So there's multiple brigades operating so like there's the cork number one brigade the cork number two brigade and in the northeast you've got a really interesting brigade structure which has dividing lines like uh, in Derry. there's a Derry brigade around the city and then there's a brigade which has a really difficult time operating because they're in a real protestant heartland so these brigade structures allow ghq officers to go down as kind of training officers or liaison officers at brigade level and to link in with local ira men at the end of the day there's an IRA arms dump somewhere, there's a few active local volunteers, and then there's a really important train of sympathisers around them. So safe houses, women who can carry dispatches, uh, young boys who can act as lookouts. These, This is the nature of a guerrilla army. And the IRA between 1919 and 21 are in some ways probing out the, the basis of modern insurgency warfare. And meanwhile, the British army are teasing out the origins of what we now refer to as coin or counterinsurgency. One of the most amazing artefacts from this time is the IRA's newspaper. It's called On Pogluck. We mentioned it briefly uh, in the last episode. And during the War of Independence, this became like an organ of communication for IRA brigades. It was a way to kind of keep everyone informed of what was going on on a national level. On Pogluck, which is the Irish word for the volunteer, is the magazine or newspaper of the IRA. Um, so this is published by Pierce Baisley, who's in one of GHQ's departments, the Department of Publicity. And this is a, a sometimes monthly, sometimes more scattered than that magazine that gets distributed through the chain of command down into the brigades, down into the battalions and ultimately down into the individual companies of the IRA for volunteers to read. And it's, it's a fascinating publication. It's fully available on Military Archives website, by the way. Um, and it has everything from like how to do first aid, how to do signaling, uh, advice from recent activities. So there'd be fascinating things saying like, OK, vis-a-vis arson, uh, IRA units have had great success in burning out police barracks and other posts of the enemy in recent times. However, for the inexperienced volunteer, don't use petrol, use kerosene as it has a lower burning point and Uh, the inexperienced volunteer using petrol is more likely to light himself on fire than to destroy the enemy post that he's attacking. You know, there's there's advice on creating explosives, which is coming from Seamus O'Donovan, who's the director of chemicals within the uh, GHQ. Um, There's loads of training notes. There's also circulars. It's the way it's the kind of way that they do less sensitive written communications with their units. So it's, it's a really fascinating way to chart week by week and month by month, what the IRA are doing, what they think they're doing, and how they're trying to discipline the units that are actually at the coalface fighting the police, the British Army, 
uh, the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries. Listeners, of course, I had to go and look up some of those volumes uh, of, the, of that newspaper on Togluk. Like Connor said, they are freely available on the Irish Defence Forces website. You can find that at militaryarchives.ie if you want to look at them yourself. It is kind of fascinating to see these documents there, actually, because the Irish Defence Forces in Irish are still called Ogli Neherin, which means the Irish Volunteers. Mm. It's, the, it's the same word. And, you know, they are essentially one of the direct inheritors of this original rebel army. So it's kind of fascinating to see that newspaper there. Um, anyway, mm. Naomi, I picked a few extracts for you, which are just amazing. So, so here's the first one. Oh, great. Okay, this one is from an article written on the 15th of March, 1920, entitled... Explosive Devices, Part 1, Incendiary Compositions. Oh, gosh. All right, here it goes. Now it seems a matter of some difficulty to get the right kind of iron oxide, so it is suggested instead to use manganese dioxide. The action which takes place is represented by chemists as following, and here they have an equation. Later on, the same article continues. In the way of useful chemicals, the following are always of use and worth storing. Pure concentrated nitric or sulfuric acids, aluminium, powdered, ammonia nitrate, red phosphorus, potassium nitrate, and potassium chlorate. Note, all work should be carried out away from flammable materials. It's basically the anarchist cookbook, an early version. (laughs) Yeah, uh, basically, yeah, but really, really comprehensive. And, you know, these chemical equations are really quite complex that they're providing here to get this exactly right. So it's not teaching you how to, you know, make a bomb per se. It's teaching you how to get your bomb right, you know, right? (laughs) Um, There's loads of this kind of stuff. I love this little article from the 1st of March, uh, 1920. It's entitled Explanation of contour lines on maps and it reads Mm. all spots on the same contour line are on the same height above sea level the following will illustrate this take a large irregular stone with a flat base and place it in a bowl pour water into the bowl to a depth of one inch and again at two and three inches at each stage draw a chalk line around the stone where the water reaches it and it teaches you then you know basically how this works i mean the reason i love this is because it reminds me of like um uh, geography lessons when you're about 13 (laughs) right of course a lot of these kids who are reading this are 13 and 14 like this is a kind of kind of high school education they're getting in a weird way in the context Mm. of um of military education it's a bit like intense scouts or something yeah exactly Um, yeah (laughs) (laughs) always be prepared to burn down police station it's it's interesting to see how they figured out with the means that they have how to coordinate the IRA on a national level um, and educate these new recruits in the ways of advanced modern warfare Mm. Uh, like those two extracts there they tell you quite a lot you know people they they knew how to read equations how to translate them into chemical formulae um, how to make explosives and that experiment with the stone shows you know how they're using military strategy based on maps and geography um it's really interesting when you think about this being like so much a self-organized movement like these young men and women who might have known nothing else but life on their farms in this small village this is kind of a it must have been kind of exhilarating to be part of yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's it's not only um, practical things, by the way, that get discussed in this magazine. So through on Togluk, the IRA was able to establish a very clear and coherent aim and policy and kind of direction for the movement to keep everyone's eye on the same ball, basically. Uh, so uh, consider this article from the 15th of March, 1920. It's entitled, We Must Not Fail. And it reads, 
We would like to point out that all that has been achieved so far is small besides what remains to be done. It is true that our successes far succeed our failures, but the fact remains that there have been failures, and there should be none. Our successes have been due to good local organization, mm. sound discipline, well thought out plans, and officers who use their intelligence. There is not a barrack in the country that cannot be taken if proper methods are employed. And then that same article goes on to condemn a recent case where IRA members had raided a civilian household to take their guns to seize arms. And, you know, it reprimands them for doing this. It says, It seems hardly possible that any volunteer is unaware that the raiding of private houses is contrary to the express orders of headquarters, sent out over two years ago and subsequently repeated. If any volunteers are still ignorant on this point, the responsibility lies with the officer who failed to transmit these orders. We are not at war with our neighbours, but with the forces and officials of the English enemy. It's really interesting in many ways, and it, it does show how difficult like armed men and armed groups are mm. inherently to control, um, especially in such a diffuse organisation and the ways in which civilians can get caught up in that. Um, I can see that like from sort of military strategy and propaganda point of view, um, it's quite clever. You know, anyone reading this, um, including people who might be skeptical or afraid of the IRA, is seeing that they're stating in, in black and white, you know, there's sort of standards, you know, there's orders not to harm or bother civilians, you know. Um, so it's, I suppose it's a kind of a, you mm. know, it's a PR move in a way. Um, but also, like, we have to think about this in the context of British state, what British state forces were doing at this time, where they were harassing um, civilians as a sort of deliberate policy. Um, you know, they were using that sort of um, like terrorizing tactics. And so to see that sort of distinguishing line, you're looking at a war for the allegiance of people and for who who was seen as the more legitimate authority in terms of how they would treat civilians and provide for life in the country. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting, isn't it? It's bringing back that same um, issue of the information war that we were talking about last mm -hmm. time, how powerful it is to kind of just know your audience, know who you're speaking to and tell them what they want to hear, which like the 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 doll and the Irish nationalists in general had consistently been really good at, you know, at throughout this and which actually, in, in contrast, the British forces were consistently really bad at it. <laughs> they really were very bad at it, partly just because they didn't care and they knew they had greater force anyway. They didn't need to, right? Um, but we'll see, we'll see how bad they were, um, at it, uh, in a minute. So let's get onto this, actually. The black and tans, which is the main subject of this episode. Now, listeners, uh, you might actually have come across the word tan on the internet, on social media, as used by Irish people, uh, because it is a kind of glib insult these days for, it's usually used for condescending or kind of anti-Irish sentiment uh, coming out of Britain. Yeah, especially since Brexit, this term tansplaining has become mm. a way to talk about, you know, ignorant or arrogant British takes on Irish politics or culture. Um, and to be honest, there has been quite a bit of opportunity to use that term over the last six years, especially when you have people in power, um, Tory politicians who clearly don't know what they're talking about, making pronouncements about how things uh, work in Ireland or otherwise. Mm. So it's a joke, but it does actually reference to a very dark period in Irish history. Yeah, indeed. So who are the Black and Tans? Well, 
Actually, it's a bit of a catch-all term today. It describes mm-hmm. two separate and quite different uh, British for- state forces, actually. Firstly, it refers to about 10,000 new recruits to the RIC, to the Royal Irish Estab- uh, Constabulary, who didn't actually mm-hmm. have an official name. Um, technically, they were no different from regular RIC police, but they had mostly been recruited in England from 1920 onwards, all at once, to replace these Irish police officers who had abandoned their posts during the Dáil's political takeover. These were often men who'd been on the battlefields of World War I just a year before, and so many of them were deeply traumatised. There was a work shortage in Britain at this point, and they were offered higher wages than usual if they'd take these dangerous posts in Ireland. Um, Remember, this is pretty much the last thing that anyone wanted to do at this stage, but many of these men um, may not have had many other prospects after the war. Um, It was done in a rushed way. They often didn't have full uniforms. They were a combination of army and police garb. And that's what gave them their nickname, the black and tans, after the colours that they were wearing, mixed colours. Yeah, you know, uh, interestingly, I actually came across a contemporary explanation of that, of the term black and tans and where it came from. Um, This is from a witness statement by Sean Prendergast, who was an IRA captain in the 1920s. And he writes down in his witness statement that black and tans was derived from their sartorial attire, which consisted of a mixture of, in some cases, khaki tunic and black RIC trousers or black RIC tunic with khaki trousers. The name was applied by some Irish wag. That name was accepted by the Irish people as the fitting title for a force that had been thrown into Ireland to settle the Irish mess. At a later period, a shorter term, the Tans, was used, particularly by Republicans, to describe the force. So I thought that was kind of interesting that it was, it was kind of an insult and that it was created by the Irish population and also that they were calling them the Tans straight away. Yeah, Mm. and that's so interesting to hear it used like that. And also, you know, it's derogatory, you know, it's sort of slagging them off for looking a bit messy. So Prendergast also gives a brief summary of how he sees these new recruits, uh, which gives us a bit more context. So he goes on to say this. The British authorities gave to the Black and Tans virtual authority over the lives and fortunes of the people of Ireland. That policy incorporated reprisals, murders, burnings, and innumerable forms of savage activity. Frightfulness and terror became the order of the day. Destructions and killings became common throughout the land by night. The Black and Tans carried these to a fine art. In their wild, mad careering through Ireland, they shot up, blew up and burned out peasant homes, business stores, creameries and industrial concerns. The British authorities were in the mood to grapple grapple with the IRA and in so doing had no desire to call halt to the orgy but rather advanced the plea that the situation in Ireland called for strong, very strong measures. Right. So as we'll see, uh, the Black and Tans were intensely vicious uh, in their activity, mm-hmm. but they were soon joined by a second force, the Auxiliary Division. Now, this was actually a new paramilitary unit of the RIC. And often when people talk about the Black and Tans, they're actually talking about the Auxiliaries. Uh, let's hear mm. from Connor again. As to what the Black and Tans are, they're really just additional members of the RIC, of the Royal Irish Constabulary. So as, as you mentioned in your previous podcast, the RIC are resigning in their droves. They're being boycotted. They're being encouraged by the IRA to resign. In some cases, they're receiving death threats and said, you know, if you just resign, we'll leave you alone. But if you stay in this, you're a dead man. And that's extremely effective at stopping people from being members of the RIC. So the RIC need new numbers. So these are largely demobilized soldiers 
uh, or people who, who want to get good pay to go to Ireland in the middle of a jobs crisis in Britain to really be left to their own devices and to try and bring the fight to the IRA. So that's the black and tans. They're just ordinary members of the RAC, but they've been recruited during the conflict in order to uh, come to Ireland on, on higher pay and carry out this, this armed campaign against the IRA. Now, who are the auxiliaries? The auxiliaries are auxiliary temporary cadets who are a special force of the Rollers Constabulary, completely autonomous themselves. And from what we know of them, they're largely uh, demobilized officers from the First World War and they're paid a really good wage. I think it's a pound a day off the top of my head, although that may be uh, that may be a slight overstatement of it. Because of their military background, by and large, they're very well trained and quite well armed and they become the real scourge of the IRA. So you'll see in IRA documents uh, designation of auxiliaries being something that the IRA definitely feared. And the auxiliaries are the ones who really have, uh, I, think, I think, quite a stranglehold, not just in the IRA, but on the population at large. They're heavily responsible for the reprisals policy that is being operated unofficially from 1920 and at a certain point officially by the British government. Um, and that's the campaign of counter-terror. So for the sake of brevity, listeners, we're just going to use the common catch-all term of black and tans here for this collection of new RIC recruits and the paramilitary auxiliaries. There's a few reasons why the release of these new forces into Ireland caused so much devastation. Firstly, these units were being released into a mainly civilian context. The line between the official IRA combatants and just general civilians in Ireland, this was extremely blurred. And to fight the IRA in much of the country was tantamount to fighting the people who lived there. Secondly, instead of being sent onto battlefields in formation, uh, where they had like a clear target on the other side of the trenches or something and, and clear orders on how to act, these guys were just sort of released into towns and villages. They were sent roaming around the countryside basically to smoke out the IRA wherever they could. And this translated into a campaign of terror. They'd arrive in a town or village at any point and subject locals to violence, torture, intimidation, often arson. There were all sorts of deep-seated resentments that were underlying all of this. Many of these demobbed soldiers already had grievances against Irish nationalists for, for example, not going to fight in World War I. And now they were being attacked by guerrilla units of the IRA from all over a rural landscape that they didn't know and they didn't understand. Remember, in this countryside, people, they spoke a different language. They wore unfamiliar clothes. Catholicism was all pervasive. They had a very different way of life. It would have been somewhat exotic and probably discomforting for this, these English soldiers. So the Black and Tans were already confused, they were angry, and they were constantly being stoked up against the Irish populace from British authorities. Yeah, this is a really interesting dimension of this. Now, the last thing that the British wanted was for the Black and Tans to start feeling any kind of sympathy for the rebels. So the recruits were fed this steady stream of propaganda while they were in Ireland to feed their hatred of the IRA. Dublin Castle actually created a special propaganda newspaper just for the Black and Tans. It was called The Weekly Summary. And basically it was just snippets of anti-Irish articles from a range of different British publications all collated together onto like a one sheet uh, on a regular okay. basis. So the idea, quite plainly, was to whip up anger against the Irish among these Black and Tans and to make sure that they were as brutal as possible uh, in their suppressions. Just to give you a taste of it, the weekly summary included headlines like Shins on the Run, Rounding Up the Rats, 
uh, queue of recruits for the RIC, Republic founded on wholesale murder. Uh, the, the paper also showed particular loathing for Eamon de Valera, which it described as Ireland's Spanish-American president. It reported on the 4th of February 1921 that de Valera, quote, belongs to a race of treacherous murderers and has inducted Ireland into the murderous treachery of his race. Weird. Yeah, there's a whole weird current that I noticed before, actually, whenever we um, when we were talking about Eamon de Valera. There's a whole weird current of kind of anti-Spanish sentiment, actually, coming from <laughs> from from Britain at this point. And, you know, right. they keep bringing up that de Valera has this Spanish heritage as if it's some kind of, you know, own, right? Um, here's one snippet from an edition uh, from September 24th, 1920. This was taken from the Daily Express and it was published in the Weekly Summary. Quote, the Irish rebels have taught the Irish people the same lesson that the Mexican rebels taught the Mexican people. It is easy to incite a naturally lawless people to lawlessness. The Irish claim to be able to run their own affairs, but the present state of Ireland is a clear object lesson to the effect that they cannot do it. Yeah, thanks, guys. How's that going for you? Sure, yeah. The Mexican Revolution, by the way, was happening around the same time, and that's constantly referenced as well. The Irish Revolution um, kind of being compared to the Mexican Revolution is this really um, mm. interesting intimation that's made. I'm not quite sure what they're getting at, but maybe maybe you can follow that up in future. Mm. This sort of like Spanish <laughs> idea of this Spanish boogeyman, it's like very retro. I'm thinking like, how long had it been at this point that this that Britain had been at war with Spain like mm. <laughs> it's definitely like this old Catholic foe mm. but yeah it's a uh, it's a long time now um so let's have a look of New Year's Eve 1920 and um, this is apparently happy news from Britain's Daily Telegraph and it appeared in the weekly summary the military authorities have adopted a new preventative against ambushes henceforth they will take Sinn Feiners through the country in their lorries so that if an attack is made, friends of the attacking party will also be exposed to its consequences. Okay, so that's like great news, everybody. We're using Irish people as human shields. Yeah, right. So this is the kind of stuff that they were being fed all the time, right? Now, Connor mentioned state-sanctioned reprisals there, and this is where the real bloody history of the Black and Tans you know, gets to the core. In the summer of 1920, Winston Churchill managed to get one of his close friends appointed police advisor in Ireland. This guy's name, his friend's name, was Henry Hugh Tudor. He was a British Army mm -hmm. officer. Um, he came from a minor gentry family. He had a lot of experience in colonial situations. He had been posted in South Africa, in India, and in Egypt in previous years. And actually, it's it's very telling that after his stint in Ireland, Churchill dis redispatched Henry Hugh Tudor to Palestine. And he actually mm. took large numbers of the Black and Tans with him from Ireland directly to Palestine. Uh, so you mm. can see that Ireland was very explicitly being dealt with in the context of an empire, you know, that was crumbling. Uh, lot, lots of people thought that Tudor would reel in the Black and Tans, um, because at this point their violence and looting was even becoming a scandal in England. But what he actually did was the exact opposite. Firstly, he heavily militarised the remaining RIC police forces in Ireland, and then he sent in the auxiliary paramilitaries. Now, the Black and Tans, bolstered by the auxiliaries, had basically become a roving terror group. They remained mostly on the move, they were armed to the teeth, and they were riding around the countryside in armoured cars, attacking suspected hotspots of rebel activity. 
It was Henry Hugh Tudor who, instead of bringing a sense of discipline to the British paramilitaries in Ireland, encouraged them to take reprisals against local communities. This usually meant that if an RAC officer was killed by the IRA, the Black and Tans would find an IRA member or sympathiser to kill in turn. This ramped up violence considerably and it also underlined the fact that British forces in Ireland were now functioning completely outside of any legal framework. Even unionists in Ireland started to get really worried about the level of brutality and lawlessness that these new auxiliary forces were demonstrating. Yeah, uh, not only unionists, but the other divisions of the RIC, the original police who were, you know, left over, they were also horrified Mm. by the behaviour of the Black and Tans, um, especially, you know, when it came to their drunkenness as well, which was a big problem. So Mm. a lot of the RIC who had, you know, persevered, who had hung on in the force until now, now they tried to abandon the police force. They didn't want anything to do with Mm. this, but they weren't allowed to resign anymore. There was, you know, a stop was put to resignations because the British couldn't lose any more police in Ireland. So Mm. instead, what actually happens at this point is a lot of the original RIC police started acting as informants for the IRA. That's so interesting. So their allegiance shifted. Mm. Um, So, and I suppose at this point as well, if they're looking at their options dwindling and they want to save themselves and they don't want to, they don't want to become themselves the object of the IRA violence. If they, if they think they're on the losing side, Mm. this is also a way to save themselves. It's actually to become useful to them. Um, The impunity with which the Black and Tans were allowed to act, this wasn't just blatant, but it also further exposed the British government as quite corrupt in its dealing with with Ireland. And this turned even the most moderate observers against it. For example, in one case, a band of about 30 auxiliary paramilitaries were driving around drunk in County Cork when they came across a 24-year-old farmer's son named Tyg Crowley who was repairing a car for the 73-year-old parish priest, an innocent enough scene. The Tans ordered both men to show their IDs, and then they shot them dead, one after another. Yeah, and there's just loads and loads of instances like this, kind of unwarranted, unprovoked, kind of cold-blood murder that was happening in the countryside. Mm -hmm. When I was last down in Kerry, I heard one of them about my relations, where Mm. the Black and Tans came across, they were bringing the milk like they're dairy farmers right they were bringing the milk to the creamery I guess to sell it and just for no reason at all the the person who was bringing the milk was a a young woman a teenager and just for no reason at all the black and tans just spilt all the milk they just dumped it onto the road zero reason just being dicks you know but that's obviously you know the livelihood of those farmers um and that was the kind of just like random cruelty and destruction that was being inflicted on just ordinary people and those are the sorts of stories that still are passed down to this day in people's families it's it's so interesting you mentioned that story actually because connor uh told me uh during our interview that uh, creameries were a prime target of the black and tans mm. uh, because they were a symbol of economic profit in in ireland because it was one mm. of the few sectors where irish people were making you know money they were becoming prosperous through uh, dairy right um so that they mm. would specifically target creameries uh, to try and humiliate irish people um and the ira and that they would actually take bodies of the people that they killed and dumped them in the creameries to to spoil oh, the produce as a as a statement. That's it's, gruesome. Yeah, yeah. You can hear that, by the way, <gasps> listeners, in my full interview with Connor Melva, which I will be putting up on our Patreon. On our <laughs> Patreon, which you can find as always on www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. A bit of an an early shout out to the Patreon there. 
Uh, Seamless ad placement there. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing this long enough, Naomi. <laughs> I can spot an opening <laughs> to uh, to plug the Patreon. Now, listen. One of the most um, famous black and tan reprisals is something that we actually mentioned before in a previous episode. Uh, it took place on the twenty first of November in nineteen twenty in Dublin. Now. We should mention here, by the way, that the IRA were able to be just as brutal and cold-blooded as the Black and Tans when they wanted to be. Uh, and we have to remember that the IRA were going around murdering, murdering people as well. So on the morning of the 21st of November, uh, Michael Collins, who was the IRA's director of intelligence, he had actually sent out orders for the assassination of this big group of uh, British intelligence agents uh, known as the Cairo Gang. Uh, they were based in Dublin. And those assassinations were, you know, they were pretty brutal. There was a simultaneous strike where the IRA showed up at multiple locations, usually at the homes of these British spies or in hotels, and they shot 14 people dead, uh, probably including some innocent civilians who had been targeted mistakenly, and also two mm-hmm. auxiliaries and an RIC officer who had come to the scene. So this event, this really infuriated the British authorities uh, because not only did the assassinations obliterate Westminster's core intelligence operation in Ireland, um, but it spread panic throughout the rest of the Secret Service. So countless other British spies just immediately fled Ireland after this happened. Later that day, a convoy of black and tan trucks and armoured cars arrived at a Gaelic football match that was being held in Croke Park in Dublin. Inside, there were 5,000 spectators who'd come to see the game, and they were blocked inside the stadium by these forces. Afterwards, the Black and Tans said that they were intending to carry out a cordon and search operation. But what actually happened was that they opened fire into the crowd of spectators in the stadium for an estimated 90 seconds. 14 people were killed outright, and they ranged in ages from 11 to 57 years old. Now, the authorities tried to claim after the incident that the police had been fired on by IRA sentries, but even unionist newspapers at the time, you know, made fun of that. They didn't believe them for a moment because there Mm -hmm. were 5,000 witnesses to what happened in Croke Park. There were countless statements to confirm that the Black and Tans just came in and opened fire with no provocation. So it seemed clear to everyone at this point, uh, you know, whether they were nationalist or unionist, that the British were taking their revenge against the IRA by targeting ordinary Irish civilians. This is, of course, happening in a context where symbols of Irish organising and Irish identity identity are being systematically targeted, coming to a stadium where a sports, a GAA sports game is being held and opening fire on the crowd would just seem on the face of it, a you know, open shut reprisal case. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to remember that Gaelic Sunday that we talked about uh, in our last episode where the the Gaelic Athletic Association was central to this kind of passive resistance against police authority. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that the police already had, you know, a grind with the GAA. The most offensive operations, most audacious operations against the IRA are through this ultimately state-sanctioned counter-terror by the auxiliaries and the Black and Tans. They're really, they're going around the countryside drawing out the IRA, following up on intelligence and gathering by the police uh, and and taking the fight to the IRA in a really significant way that's hampering IRA activities and uh, also harassing the local local population. So this is something that really sticks in the craw of ordinary Irish people in the community and of the IRA, that the auxiliaries and black and tans are uh, harassing the local population as a way of either taking revenge for IRA activities or of drawing the IRA out. They're the only ones with a counter-terror remit. 
And counterterrorism doesn't mean against terrorism. It means fighting terror with terror. We actually have quite a few first-hand accounts of the Black and Tans activities, uh, particularly in the form of witness statements, which were collected by the Free State after independence. Now, I'm going to read you a few extracts from those, but a quick warning to those of you who may be listening with young children, or who might want to avoid, anyone who wants to avoid graphic descriptions of violence, because these are really upsetting. So please do skip forward a few minutes. Um, I genuinely had to take a break a few times while reading through these. Um, so you know, um, yeah, do look after yourself and, and don't listen to this if, if you don't want to hear about it. Here's one collection by Michael O'Dronan, who is a member of the East Connemara Brigade of the IRA, wherein he describes being raided by the Black and Tans. I was beginning to think that things were quietening down. I was standing outside the gate when looking towards the west, I saw a fleet of lorries coming from the spiddle direction. I backed in, shut the gate, and made off inside the wall in the direction from which the lorries were coming. There was a large breach in the wall, and I could see the heads of the tans when they were passing by this breach. I went about 80 yards from the house and pushed myself into a clump of briars in the wood. They all pulled up at the gate and questioned Keneally. Where is he? Where is he? He told them that he had not seen me, and then they battered him with rifle butts and knocked out some of his teeth. They fired shots all through the place and sp- spread out through the field, practically everywhere except for where I was under cover. Shots were whistling through the wood, which was a sparse little wood, all around me. They went into the little house and threatened my wife, who was afraid for the two young children, one of whom was less than four months old. However, they did not come my way. What they did was move on through Kappa, interrogating and beating up the people. They shot a horse belonging to one person, and then they moved on. Some of the most striking descriptions that I came across come from Geraldine Dillon, who was a member of Common Man, and she was the sister, actually, of the Easter Rising rebel Joseph Plunkett, who had died in the Rising. Uh, She was living in Galway City at this point because her husband had got a job as a professor in the university. And Galway was actually, the county of Galway was one of the greatest scenes of black and tan violence uh, during the War of Independence. Uh, Because of Geraldine's family history, they were constant targets of black and tan raids. Uh, Here's one of her witness statements about their activities in the town. They spent their money on drink and lived on loot, pigs, hens and ducks stolen from country people. They drank anything, mixtures of bovril and whiskey, gin and rum. They stole everything, down to the old lady's red petticoat, and sent them to their friends in England as souvenirs. We heard from people in England of the wonderful things their friends were getting, and did not realise they were stolen. Nine extra trainloads of parcels of poultry were sent by them from the Galway post office at Christmas. Wow, incredible. Here's another part of that same account. The Connacht Tribune reported that the Loch brothers, Patrick and Henry, mere boys, were dragged after lorries, their heads blown off with gelignite placed in their mouths. Petrol poured over them and set alight, and they were then thrown into a pole of water. Donnelly's pub was set on fire three times in one night, but each time the local volunteers put out the fires. Houses were daubed with filth, and parlours used as lavatories. Men were scourged in Corrifin. All this time, the volunteers in the county continued to burn abandoned barracks and to attack occupied ones. Railway workers refused to carry armed soldiers. 
I actually know that pub, Donnelly's pub, and it's still covered in bullet marks uh, from those attacks. You can still see the bullets uh, wow. from the black and tans. The, this terror that Dylan describes is just relentless. It's just one horror after another. And it's clear that the black and tans are making very little distinction between civilian and IRA. You know, both seem to be targets. And it almost seems at times like they're hunting people for sport. Uh, she continues here. Troops then took Johnny Broderick from his home and Cummins from his lodgings and put them up against the big door at the railway station and shot them. Cummins was wounded in the leg and fell. Broderick's head was grazed by a bullet and he cleverly fell also, pretending to be dead. Seeing him covered in blood, the police left him. His mother was locked in her house and it was set on fire. Her screams mixed with poor Quirks, who had been shot several times in the stomach. The neighbours rushed to put the fire out and were threatened with guns. Certain houses had practically daily raids. Four girls had their hair cut off, which was more of a tragedy then than it would be now. A young man named Harry Burke was made crawl on his hands and knees up and down the square in his nightshirt, and when his knees were cut to pieces, a tan took him by the heels and made him finish it on his hands. There were lorries going about all night in Galway, firing rifles. Louis O'Day's office was bombed. Pat Moylet's shop looted. The Bal Hotel was looted, while the Tans beat a shop boy, played the melodeon, and spat on the crucifix. The mention of four girls getting their hair cut off, uh, which was more of a tragedy then than it is now, is particularly chilling. I remember when we talked to the historian Dr. Mary McAuliffe in a previous episode, she talked about the sexual violence that was perpetrated during the War of Independence on both sides and how it was often talked about in a kind of euphemistic language like this. They would talk about outrages and things like that without specifying. Um, we have to remember that all of this was taking place in safe houses, in homes, in the community itself, in intimate spaces. So the war was all the time coming into the domestic sphere and destroying the lives of ordinary people. Yeah, I, su I suppose, you know, Geraldine Dillon is writing as a woman, right? And she mentions it was more of a shame then than it is now, because of course, women were cutting their hair short by the time that she was writing this. Um, but back yeah, then... But at the time, it was a sort of a, wasn't it a sign of some stigma or something like that? Disfigurement almost. Right. Yeah, yeah, oh, just really awful stuff. Um, that mention of the young man who was made to crawl on his hands and knees until he's you know, like cut to ribbons, that also reminded me of an, a, another a previous episode about the colonial suppressions in India. Because um, I remember at one point in that episode on Ireland and India, how colonial officials there made people crawl on their hands and knees as a kind of dehumanizing act as a punishment. Uh, and we have to remember that that was happening at the same time. All of this is in the same imperial context. Events don't just happen on a single day or in all locations. And that's another thing I think people should be aware of when we're talking about any revolution or, or conflict. The war comes to your village on a certain day and then it leaves again and it leaves scars behind it. But for many people, they still had to get on with ordinary life. It's not like, and I suppose we have a sense of this with the conflict in Ukraine at the moment, there's still people having to get up and go to work every day and do fairly mundane and ordinary things while extraordinary things are happening around them. And that's very much the case with the Irish Revolution. And by and large, it is your daily life being interrupted sporadically by unexpected events, horrific events, catastrophic events, and often fatal events, either within your own family or your friends, sir. One of the Black and Tans' most infamous attacks was on the city of Cork, which they largely burned down in December 1920. 
the southwest of Ireland had by far the greatest level of rebel activity, and the city of Cork had recently elected a series of Republican Lord Mayors. So when a British auxiliary patrol was ambushed by the IRA in the city, Cork itself suddenly became the target of retaliation. I spoke to the author and historian Michal Lanahan about the wider context for the burning of Cork, which changed the face of the city forever. Funny enough, in 1920, there was, there was uh, three Republican Lord Mayors. The first one was Tomás McCorton. He was a great writer and playwright. But he was also responsible for publishing a newspaper called Fianna Fáil. And we're all aware today of Fianna Fáil and what it means. But he actually brought that out and there was, I think, 11 issues published. And then it was suppressed by the British. He was seen as a target, basically. And unfortunately, he was murdered in front of his wife and children in March 1920. His successor was Terence McSweeney. And he became the second Republican Lord Mayor. He was tried by the British for holding a cipher, which he had, they said, in the city hall. They could decrypt messages that the British were sending. Mm. He was put on trial and he said he was the chief magistrate of the city, which he actually was at the time, being the Lord Mayor. And uh, he said he would go on hunger strike rather than being jailed. And his hunger strike lasted for 74 days in Brixton's prison. And he died... And he became a huge symbol for the Republican movement. As a matter of fact, they wanted to bring his body through uh, Dublin uh, from Brixton and they were prevented by the British authorities at the time because they didn't want a scene like what happened in 1916 with the executed leaders of the uh, Rising becoming martyrs. And then we turn our attention to the third Republican Lord Mayor, who was Donald O'Callaghan, Donald Ogue. He had to go on the run, because he knew straight away that he was the next target. There's no way he was going to be to left there, be left there untouched. Because of its associations with republicanism, Cork City Hall had become a highly symbolic target of the Black and Tans. Several times they tried to burn down the City Hall. They smashed the glass. Hoardings were put in place to try to stop the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries throwing incendiary devices set fire to it because that was seen as a hotbed of republicanism. But what the Black and Tans as well and the auxiliaries turned their attention to was the Sinn Féin clubs. Anything remotely collected with, 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 uh, with the GA, for instance... Uh, the Irish Transport Hall, any organisations that were seen to be organising Irish people, they targeted. The, the best accounts that we have of what actually happened on the night are from Captain Hudson of the Fire Brigade. And incidentally, there was a curfew in the city at the time. The British Army were totally in control of the city. All the citizens were actually at home in their houses. At three o'clock in the morning, Grant's department store was seen to be on fire. And all during the night, all the big, big, the main stores on the right-hand side of the city were set on fire. And then Hudson gets a report, the city hall is on fire. So with the small brigade that he has, he's finding it impossible to out the fires. For instance, with the city hall, he had men stationed there and on a permanent basis near the hydrants. And they were trying to out the fire. And that was happening on an ongoing basis prior to the main burning. And the British they cut the hoses and rendered them useless. And the firemen then had to just give up on the city hall, basically, and turned their attention to the other buildings in the city. Mm. But what's also very, very interesting is 
the way the buildings were targeted. There was an awful lot of looting went on at the time. Roach's jewellery shop was looted. You also had Egan the silversmiths. They were also looted. So some of that had was becoming a cover-up that they'd loot the premises and then they'd set fire to it. And we have eyewitness accounts to prove all that. We have eyewitness accounts from, for instance, a Baptist minister. We have eyewitness accounts from people that were living overhead as these buildings were being set on fire. People were trying to evacuate from these buildings and at the same time they had troops firing, shooting at them. So as people were leaving the burning buildings to flee, they came under fire? They did, they certainly did. Now, I don't think the troops deliberately fired at them, but very close to them. Some people were, had, there was reports that they were, there, there was bullets nearly hit them in, at their, in their feet, you know. But we also have reports of firemen were fired on, and we have one report of a fireman, and he was injured by a bullet, he was hit in the nose, and he was taken to the Norton Family Hospital. So firing at firemen, cutting the hoses so that the fires can't be put out, why, what do you think was the justification or the idea behind doing that? What, what is the motiva- motivation of burning Cork City? Well, the, the motivation really at the time was the, the killing of the auxiliary and the wounding of several others. So it was retaliation. It was retaliation, but as well as that, the, the auxiliaries and the black and tans, they broke into licensed premises and they stole drink. And it was a kind of a drunken orgy, really, as well, going on as the whole thing expanded. And what's amazing is that a lot of the buildings um, that were burned, there was loyalists, the people that were loyal to Britain, and they found that their premises were being set on fire. And the corporation, after the, the actual burning of the city, they, they had to come along and try to get compensation. And the problem was they had to establish who burned the city. And the British at the time were not coming out to government and saying, yes, it was our forces done it. There was a huge cover-up after the burning of the city. The British did not want to take the blame for what happened. They blamed the Republic element for burning their own city, which, of course, didn't happen. They went away and they made up a kind of a fake map. And they put the City Hall into Patrick Street as the municipal buildings. And the City Hall caught fire and there was a spark ignited and it set fire to the whole city. But of course, if anyone knows the topography of the city, the City Hall is way over the other side of the channel and it would travel all that way, a spark to set fire to the city. It was 78 years before the results of the Strickland report suddenly appeared in queue and nobody knew. There was never announced. Nobody knew. Nobody even knew it was there. It was just discovered by accident. That after 78 years, this this official inquiry suddenly uh, kind of came into the limelight. Just appeared in the in the National Archives in Kew. Yeah, yeah. Not the first time that that's happened, the uh, darker chapters of British colonial history, we should say. I actually came across evidence of this cover-up, Naomi, when I was like leafing mm. through some of this propaganda newspaper for the Black and Tans, the, the weekly summary. I found this extract. It was taken from a British publication called Plain English. I don't know actually what that is. And it appears in the weekly summary on the 31st of December. So that's about two weeks after the burning of Cork. It says this. Not a single shop assistant was burned in the conflagration. Why? The Fenians had ordered the shop assistants to be absent after curfew that hour, because all households in that area devoted to destruction had received a similar order. Why did the Fenians destroy the principal shops in Cork? 
simply because these shops are the property of wealthy loyalists, and because Sinn Féin is determined to drive the loyalist population out of its regions, which it claims for its republic. In destroying these shops, Sinn Féin believed that it would paralyze the army in its administration of martial law. So if you look that up, you can actually still find the fake map of Cork that the British made after this, um, where they, you know, they put City Hall in a different place to try and support the case that they were making uh, in retrospect that, you know, they had nothing to do with this fire. It's actually incredible, like fake maps and claims that they did it to themselves. Mm. It's like Russian disinformation. Yeah. It hasn't advanced that far. It's actually fascinating to see that, like, cover up and how similar it is to today's fake news you know they just invent a completely different reality you know and just blame the other side and in the end the question of how plausible it is isn't the first question it's always just to cause enough doubt so that people have uncertainty and they can stick to what they want to believe anyway which is you know their side the one that they support is is the good are the goodies and they haven't been that bad Mm. At this point, you know, that explanation is anyway incoherent. Uh, Like at one point, it's about burning the homes of loyalists. Another, it's about undermining martial law. So it's like, which one is it actually? You know, it's it's pretty desperate, like to claim that the people of Cork decided to burn their own city to the ground. Just doesn't make sense. Can we just describe the extent of the damage? Because of course, you've collected lots of photographs in your book, Cork Burning, of before and afterwards, which show you know the the difference in the city from then can you describe what happened to the city all mail street was totally decimated it was gone uh, all a lot of uh, shops in uh, winthrop street were destroyed and all those streets in between like robert street all their premises like likes of almost arcade at the time that was all destroyed there was shops uh, destroyed as far as and premises as far as the soap malik marshes auctioneers and then as well as that you had the likes of the smaller premises overhead the buildings. You had dressmakers, dentists, photographic studios. These were all destroyed. If you look at the the photographs, it looks like a war zone. It looks like an image of maybe the Blitz in London or more recently something out of Syria. There's just huge gaps in the the city landscape with rubble and piles of bricks and people wandering around. So the city went from being one of Ireland's major cities, prosperous, full of uh, big department stores and fancy town buildings, to looking like uh, the aftermath of a war zone. How long would it remain like that? And would Cork people live in that sort of burned out environment? That was another major problem because with the burning of the city, there was at least 2,000 people directly put out of work. But the amount of people in there were made homeless because of the burning and the people that lost their their houses and, and the way the, the way of living. It had huge ramifications. But the problem was the war of independence was to go on and then we were entering another period after that and that was nineteen twenty three, which was the Civil War. And the last building on Patrick Street, the last two buildings would have been Rocha stores and caches were not completed till nineteen twenty seven. The city hall was not completed. The corporation had been dissolved in nineteen twenty four for other reasons. And uh, Philip Monaghan, the city manager, said he was going to use the money that he got for compensation for the rebuilding of the city hall to build social housing. And he was true to his word, and that man's name is actually commemorated today in Cork by a road there, uh, Monaghan Road. 
The City Hall was not completed until 1935 and officially opened by Eamon de Valera in 1936. I think it's worth mentioning something that Conor Mulva told me when we were talking about this. When the peace treaty was finally drawn up between Britain and Ireland after the War of Independence, which we will get to eventually, listeners, both governments agreed to organise compensation for people who had lost property or jobs during the war. Um, part of this was that the Dáil provided compensation for RIC officers who had been driven out of their mm. barracks or boycotted out of their jobs. But a specific stipulation was put into the peace treaty by the Irish side to say that absolutely no compensation would ever be paid to the Black and Tans or the Auxiliaries. Remember, mm. they didn't even have an official term to describe the Black and Tans, this whole group. So it just states that any RIC personnel recruited during the two years of the war were to be definitively refused any form of compensation. That's a sentiment, of course, that's cast a very long shadow. At one point during the centenary commemorations that have been happening in recent years, an event was organised to commemorate the RIC in 2020. That was total uproar from some quarters. You know, this was seen as a normalisation or acceptance of the Black and Tans, who are, of course, part of the RIC. This is a sad and complex history, of course, because if you consider that some of those old RIC officers, uh, they became spies for the IRA, you know, many of them were sort of Catholic. There was all sorts of complexity of loyalties going on in that organization. And for a long time, you know, many of them, many of the members of this before things got uh, so violent, would have just been, in a way, ordinary police officers, um, although within a structure that was part of colonial control. So it's it's a whole complex history. It shows how contentious the whole topic remains until this day. You know, the association of that organisation with the horrific violence that was inflicted is just unforgivable in people's eyes and makes it sort of impossible to hold a commemoration of any kind. And this is just sort of a step too far, even with the inclusive approach that was taken to commemoration since 2016. Mm. It's just the enduring image that was left after the War of Independence of that organization is of terror. Um, and it's not an easy one to shake off. Absolutely. Yeah, to say the least. Now, one of the really interesting byproducts of the Black and Tans counterinsurgency and reprisal tactics was the intensification of the IRA's own, you know, quite innovative tactics itself, the so-called flying columns. Um, so this was a, a mode of guerrilla warfare, which allowed the IRA brigades to, in many cases, constantly stay one step ahead of the British security forces. And it led to a real challenge for Britain to deal with, to the point that, as Connor tells me, planes, actual aircraft, was brought in to try mm. and track them down. If you're a member of the IRA, you're a member of the Irish Volunteers or Sinn Féin, the chances are it's not safe for you to sleep in your own home or in your own bed, and your family are being harassed as a result of your IRA activities. So what happens is members of the IRA go on the run, and as they go on the run, they start to bump into other members of the IRA from the local community or neighbouring communities who are on the run, and they start to band together. So these are armed men with bandoliers, Lee Enfield rifles, maybe a Lewis machine gun, going around the countryside, trying to avoid capture by the British forces. And eventually they start to realise that there's enough of them. So let's say kind of platoon sized forces. Um, so around 30 men or thereabouts. That's just a, you know, a rough figure. They can vary wildly from much smaller to much larger than that. And they start to operate as units that are on the run, that are well armed. And they say, while we're well armed and on the run, let's start bringing the fight to the enemy. So, you know, so they start raiding police barracks. They start uh, carrying out raids on troops. They start carrying out ambushes. And this becomes the nature of the conflict as we move out of that arms acquisition phase in 1919 into kind of 1920, particularly the summer 
and the autumn into into kind of November of 1920. That's really the era in which the flying column is at its its zenith. And this is where IRA GHQ have to react to the dynamic situation on the ground. They say, okay, what have we got now? We you know we don't have uh, an IRA unit that's unknown in let's say you know South Tipperary. They're not guys who can work about their business all day and then you know don their trench coat at night and carry out a raid on the local RAC barracks or carry out an ambush on a a lorry of auxiliaries that's been seen operating in the area. Now what we have is these flying columns who are operating from safe house to safe house and taking targets of opportunity, occasionally planning bigger raids or bigger ambushes and then moving on. Um, and, and they constantly have the Crown Forces on their back, living off the local population. And they're actually operating with a large degree of community support that's uh, supporting them through safe houses, through feeding them, through providing them with intelligence on recent and significant present activities of the enemy. One of the things that kind of unites the conflict in Ireland with later uh, anti-colonial conflicts, like Algeria, for instance, is the use of air power against the flying columns. So we don't think about the role of airplanes in in the War of Independence, but the British Army and and the nascent Royal Flying Corps start to use first spotter aircraft, and I think strafing of flying columns. So aircraft are even being used to kind of Harry flying columns on from one area to the other throughout the conflict. And, you know, I just find that really fascinating in terms of modern warfare within the Irish Revolution and the British state's response to these flying columns. That's the kind of dynamic situation into, into 1920 and maybe early 1921. Wow, Tim, what an image. This has been quite an episode. Yeah, right. So you, everyone, you see how I've become a bit consumed by all this, right? It's easy to fall down a rabbit hole in the War of Independence. Who knew? Um, it's all so dramatic and it's so, so, so important to understand, you know, everything that we normally talk about in the history parts of this podcast. But keen listeners will probably have noticed that this episode, quite deliberately, has not talked very much about the one huge, glaring, and probably most pivotal aspect of this entire thing. Those 22 constituencies in the northeast of the island, where the majority wanted nothing to do with an Irish Republic, or with the War of Independence, or with the IRA, or with its flying columns. Because, Mm. you know, we don't always think about this directly in relation to the War of Independence, but right in the middle of this is when Ireland was partitioned in 1921. It happens right in the middle of this, you know, scourging of the Black and Tans while the IRA guerrilla army was at its height. You know, here we have the Government of Ireland Act enacted, partitioning the island into two jurisdictions. So, in the next instalment in this series, whether it's whether it's next or the one after next, we are going to go north, everyone, and we are going to see what was happening in those predominantly loyalist counties while revolution raged in Ireland. Oh, Tim, you're getting very good at these cliffhangers. <laughs> I can't wait to hear that episode. Yeah, indeed. And if you're interested in a little sneak peek of what we'll be discussing, remember, my full interview with Conor Mulva will be available over on Patreon, where he talks for a full hour and 20 minutes about the War of Independence and his own research. And by the way, if you are interested in this period, Connor has just released a new book in tandem with Emer Purcell about Owen McNeil. That's a figure who we mentioned in our previous episode. The book is called Owen McNeil, The Pen and the Sword, and it's available now in most bookshops if you want to get your hands on it. And if you want to know more about the burning of Cork, you can check out Michal Lanahan's book Pure Cork, where he chronicles the history and evolution of the city over the years, and it has some beautiful photographs to boot. Okay, that's all for us. Until next time, then. Slán, everyone. Slán. Thank you.